0: If you would open in your Bibles to Isaiah forty-nine, we're going to be looking at the first thirteen verses. It is oftentimes that we are reminded in this life that that we are not in control. That uh, that that things seem to be more out of control than in control, and and although we like to pretend and and set out plans that make it feel like we we have everything within our eyesight and, and we can make things comfortable for us, there's often times where we are reminded that that is, that is not the case. Uh, with, with our family, as many as you know, um, just since August in our household, we've, we've made something like 12 trips to the emergency room between people falling off ladders and and trampoline incidents, and uh, uh, slipping on the floor, and and getting stitches, and then just a week later, the stitches come out, and then hitting the chin on a table, and going back to the hospital for stitches, and me, myself, having a, a gallbladder rupture out of nowhere, unexpectedly, kidney stones, it's just one thing after another, and this last three months has reminded us personally that, we are not in control of our lives. We are, we are dependent upon someone far greater than us. And looking even beyond our own personal lives, you look at the world around you and, and you're reminded of that as well. With political uncertainty and, and terrorist attacks happening all over the place, you're just reminded that, that my life is, is not in my own hands. I need comfort. I need reassurance in this life. And as we celebrate this Christmas holiday, we find the greatest place for comfort that can be found in Christ, in Him alone, in in what He is doing in our lives, in the lives around us, in this world that He created. We find comfort in the big picture of Jesus. And that is what this Advent series is about. That Kevin started a couple weeks ago looking at Genesis 12 and seeing how so many millennia ago God showed up on the scene and, and began speaking to this man, Abraham, and telling him that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through you, every person. Will be able to see my glory, and they will be blessed if they come to me through faith. This is my plan through you, this moon worshiper in the land of Ur, in the middle of nowhere, this this nobody. I'm gonna bless everybody. And as we look at Isaiah forty nine, I want to carry on that theme. Isaiah 49 is the second of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, 42 and 49 and 50, and then again, the most famous servant song being in 53. But specifically, in this chapter 49, we, we have this picture of God's plan, where there's going to be a child who is going to be born. And. Through him, the nations are going to be blessed. In Isaiah 42, he talks about how, how he's speaking to the, the people in Israel who need comfort from God, and he's, he's reminding them that I, I have a plan. I'm going to do a new thing. Something is going to happen sometime in the future, and I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless people. And now in Isaiah 49, the, the prophet wants to... Raise our thoughts even higher as he continues on with this second servant song. And and this is what Isaiah is doing. He is lifting his readers' thoughts beyond the immediate struggles and fears that they might have, as, as he for thirty-nine chapters has been saying, God is going to punish you. There's an exile that is coming that you are going to endure. But that is not going to be the end of the story. There's something more that is going to happen. And now let me tell you, let me broaden the horizons of your mind and let you know a small piece of what my plan is. And it is an enormous plan. The Jews needed to hear this message. They would long to hear of liberation from the captivity that awaited them. However, the message of Isaiah is so much bigger than just freedom from temporary captivity. It's so much bigger than what Cyrus was going to provide in the hands of God and bringing them back into Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. It's so much more than that. There's an ultimate victory that awaits that we're going to see here. There's an ultimate victory that awaits over the ultimate enemy of sin and death. And this ultimate victory is going to come through the ultimate gift of God. What we are celebrating this week. God's servant, Jesus Christ. This is the glory of Christmas. This is the big picture that we need to focus on, on, on a world that feels so often like it is completely out of control. So let's take a look at Isaiah's second servant song here in verse in chapter 49 of verse 1, where we read, Listen, O coastlands, to me, take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain and I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. There's two things there as we look at those first six verses that are going on that are clear. First, who Isaiah is talking to, who God is talking to, is everybody on the planet. He starts off and he says, listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you peoples from afar. He's, he's saying, the farthest reaches of the earth, listen to what I'm about to say because I'm talking to Everybody now. You get just from that little taste of how big it is, God's plan. Who, whose attention he wants to draw, and that is every person on the planet. Everyone who will ever draw breath should be heeding the words of the prophet here. And the second thing it is clear is that he is talking about a servant that we need to pay attention to, that's going to do an amazing work. And this servant, as you might easily guess in verses 1 through 6, is Jesus himself. We know this because parts of these verses are quoted in Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Ephesians, Hebrews, Revelations, and they are all pointing to Jesus, Jesus. They're saying, this is who the prophet was talking about. He was talking about Jesus himself. But one of the most amazing things that jumped out as me in this text is that there's a victory that's coming. There's a grand victory that's coming, but the weapon that is going to be used for this warfare is not the typical instrument of warfare that we would think about. It's not... Uh, an actual sword or or bow. It's not guns. It's not bombs and helicopters and planes and things like that. The instrument of this warfare is the servant himself. Look again at at the end of verse 1. He says, "...the Lord has called me, Jesus, from the womb. He has had a plan for for me from the beginning." From the inward parts, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. He has called me to do something very specific. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. And he has made me a polished shaft, like an arrow. In his quiver, he has hidden me. You see that there? The instrument of warfare is a person, is Jesus. He is the sharp sword. It's Him. He's the polished arrow that never misses the mark. It is His word that is going to go forth and accomplish all that He desires. He is the dreaded weapon against the ultimate foe. It is Jesus who is the servant, who is the weapon of God. Military might will not produce the victory that all of humanity needs. It's a person who accomplishes this. It's a a babe lying in a manger. He's the one who accomplishes the victory over the ultimate enemy. This is Jesus. And the victory is going to be won through the improbable means of the gospel itself. It's going to be won through the birth of a baby and through the death of a Savior. Yet as we move on, there's also something that is a little bit confusing that arises in these first six verses that we just read. There is two israels that are being talked about here and i and i want to point that out for a reason in verse three it talks about the servant who is israel and then later on in verses five and six it talks about the one who is going to be saved who is israel as well so israel is going to restore israel How exactly does that happen? Well, the answer is seen throughout Isaiah. The nation of Israel itself had a mission. God God chose the nation of Israel. I mean, uh, He chose the nation of Israel to do something very specific. They were to represent God on this earth. That's why He gave them the law. So that when the outside world looks upon them, they would look at them and say, There is God holy and righteous, generous and giving. This This is what God looks like. Just like all of humanity, Adam was created for that exact same thing. He was placed on this earth so that the world could look and be like, oh, there is the representation of God. And just like Adam fell in his sin and failed at this mission, Israel as well failed in their mission. And it didn't even take them very long, right? They, they entered into the covenant of God and then as soon as Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai, they immediately start worshiping a false god. And they start, in a sense, through their sin, lying to the world around them about who God is. They failed in their representation or the, the, the mission that they were given by God. And in Isaiah 48... One, we see that it says here, this O house of Jacob who were called by, uh, by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention to the God of Israel. And then he says, but not in truth or in righteousness. Your life and words were supposed to paint a picture and you didn't. And therefore punishment is coming. Captivity, exile is coming, and it's coming from my hand. You failed in your mission, and therefore, Israel, I'm going to send the Israel. The Israel, my servant, will never fail. He will perfectly res- represent me. And not only will he be the Savior and the restorer of you, he'll be the perfect substitute. For you. He's going to pay the price. He is going to be the person that you could not be. So Israel will restore Israel. And let me let me add something very quickly to that. Understanding this concept that that Jesus Christ is the central figure of all scripture really is the key to understanding the Old Testament itself. To understand that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus and with all of its illustrations and all of its typology and all of its analogy is to draw our attention to who Jesus is and what the gospel is. To properly answer this question of how can Israel restore Israel, reminds us that all key figures, all key events, all key institutions, even the nation of Israel itself, is pointing us to one man, and that is Christ. And when you grab hold of that, even though there still may be confusing things about the Old Testament, When you see that in its big picture, it makes it easier to understand, oh, that's why there's lambs, and and that's why there's a temple, and a tabernacle, and that's why there's a cloud, and that's why there's fire, and and that's why there's candles, and, and all of the things that we see in the Old Testament, they're all saying, look to Him, look to Him, look to Him. He's the one I'm trying to help you to understand. In fact, Without Jesus Christ, the Old Testament would leave its audience with the greatest cliffhanger ever written. As one commentator wrote, the incompleteness of the Old Testament demands resolution, a breakthrough. On every page it cries out for Christ. So we should not be surprised when the Old Testament uses the name of Israel for Messiah. We should expect it. Because the whole Bible is all about Christ. If we understand the signals of the Old Testament itself, uh, that itself is sending us, we will read it that way. And why shouldn't we? For this is exactly how the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to read it. That Jesus Christ, or in Jesus Christ, is where all of Scripture comes together. It all hinges upon Him. He is the epicenter of all Scripture in all life. All Scripture is announcing that He is the big picture that we need to stay focused on every single day. And that is what the prophet will continue to do. As, as again, we already read verses 5 and 6. But we see this here. He says, And now the Lord, and this is Jesus speaking, And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant? Unusual there, just to think about for a second, who is Jesus the servant of? He is our servant, that is true and clear from Scripture. But primarily, he is the servant of his Father. He has come to do the Father's will. He says, who formed me? "...from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he," this is now God says, "...indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob." and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You listen to what is going on here between the exchange between God, God the Father, and God the Son. He says, you have called me, you have formed me, You've put me on this earth. You've given me a plan. You are going to be my strength. You are going to accomplish your will through me. And then God says, "You know what? It's too small of a thing for you just to re- to redeem one group of people on the planet. I've put you here so that you would redeem peoples from all the nations, not just one nation, all nations." My plan is that big. It goes beyond what you may be thinking. It stretches out to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why he starts off by saying, listen, coastlands. Listen to what I'm saying. This includes all of you. It includes all of us in this room. Whether you are an ethnic Jew by heritage or not, It includes us all. That is the the great message here that, that we can look at and say, these words are for me. God is speaking to me. He put Jesus on this earth to be a light not to just Jews, but to the whole world. A light to the world. This is something we should rejoice in on a daily basis. The early church certainly rejoiced in it, and I'll just turn there and read to you real quick from, from Acts 13. What's going on is Paul and Barnabas, they've entered into Antioch, and, and they've done what they've do. They've gone into a Jewish synagogue and they start preaching the gospel, and, and everybody's like, "That was so awesome. You should come back and hang out next week and, and teach us again." So they do. They go and they proclaim the gospel. And, and it says in verse 40, 44, So when the Jews went out from the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that the words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, then the, the, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout pro, uh, proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, Uh, Persuaded them to continue on in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews now saw the multitudes, so many Gentiles coming, they were filled with envy. And Contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken of Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For, the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. So that, you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. We see this right from the very beginning. For those Jews whose hearts would remain hard, God says, I'm proclaiming the gospel not just to you, but to the whole world. That's always been my plan. It's always been my plan. Expand your view Look at this from from my angle, from my plan, and let that comfort your hearts. See what I'm doing. See what my servant was sent to do. 2,000 years ago, the light of God became a man, and in so doing, he became a light to the nations themselves. And in this, we rejoice we say heartily amen to what God is accomplishing in our lives and in this world because this is the big picture of Christmas. Regardless of our plans and how how horizontal and small and, and how they're fixed on just the time frame, And we're trying to accomplish what we think and what we think is right and what we think is good. And God says, Stop thinking that way. Think about me and what I'm doing. My plans are so much bigger than what you can imagine. They go so far beyond your plan for 5 years or 10 years or 50 years or 1,000 years. I go so far beyond that. I have an immense plan that is focused on all of eternity that reaches the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is incredibly applicational for us this morning. It is so important for us as we look at the chaos of this world. As I said earlier, you look at seemingly terrorist attacks that just keep coming, one right after the other, and we begin to worry. You look at nations crumbling and insane people with nuclear weapons, and, and, and you look at the world around you and, and the political structure and... and Tax plans and how is this all going to affect my life? And, and we begin to worry. And then we look at, at our own individual lives and, and we see things that are happening even in our own church. This week, many of you got the updates about Pastor Jim and, and the cancer in his throat. And thank God that was found to be negative, but how it fills us with uncertainty. Bill Cunerty is sitting in a hospital right now at UCI. They don't know what's wrong and they don't know what's going to happen with his wife Claudia at his side, not knowing how is this going to work out? Are they going to send me home tomorrow? Are they ever going to diagnose what's wrong? And we feel the uncertainty of life swelling. into that, we can focus during this season upon God and His servant Christ, and be reminded that He has a plan that goes beyond whatever expectation that I have for this life. And if I would just focus on Him and the work that He is accomplishing, we will find comfort. We will find comfort. Because as I said, His plan is bigger than what next week holds, or what next year holds, what the next decade holds. His view is so much broader and if we want comfort, we need to focus on a babe who was formed in a womb, who was called by God and set upon this earth so that his gospel would be proclaimed to the nations, so that people from all over the planet would be saved. It's a big plan. It's where our mindset should be and as we continue on to verse 7, we see something even more unusual. As we go on to verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, or the one who will be a slave to those who are in authority upon this planet. He says, This one, Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. You see these words and you you see this amazing... I knew that was going to happen. You see this amazing contrast here of God's plan that He's going to execute through Jesus. And his plan is not to overwhelm an arrogant world with more arrogance. A world that, that looks at Jesus as despised, as lowly. A world that abhors who Jesus is. He's not going to overcome that sin with sin He's not going to overcome that evil with more evil. He's going to do something radical and there's going to be a radical thing that happens. They are going to despise Him. But as God executes His plan, the kings will rise up. The princes will bow their knee and worship Him. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, is the one who God has chosen. He's going to empty himself. He is going to humble himself to such a way that people will look and they will go, who is this man that you serve who died 2,000 years ago? What's the point? Why are you still here? Why are you wasting your Sunday morning? This, this, this little insignificant person, yes, he made a name for himself, kind of, but then they, the the. Disciples made up stories and they built him up into something more than he actually was. All you have to do is turn on the learning channel this week and you'll see all types of stories about who Jesus really was. They hate him. Why? Because he was humble. Jesus wasn't like the rest of humanity. He didn't overcome arrogance with more arrogance. He overcame it through humility, through servanthood. The nations despise him, but God says the kings will bow down to him. And this is the big picture of the glory of Christmas that we love so much. We love it. We we look upon a humble babe laying in a manger and we say, that's my Savior. That does not reflect the world in any way, but it does reflect a divine God who has an amazing plan. Would you just listen to it? He came as a humble servant to the world. We see this in Philippians 2. If you would turn with me, it's a text that that really mirrors the text that we're looking at this morning. So I just wanted to take a couple minutes to just read it quickly and make a couple of small comments. In Philippians 2, we actually read the first two verses of this in our reading together. At verse 6, we hear about the pre-incarnate Christ talking about Jesus Christ. It says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Here is Jesus Christ who we are to have the mindset of of humility, of loving others, of reaching out in generosity and compassion to those around us who for Him, being in the form of God, He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something that he was striving for. It wasn't something that he had to break into to God's house and steal it from him, because he was God Himself, as John 1 1 says. He was in the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. Jesus is, is the essence of God. He is He is one in essence, in attributes, in glory with God Himself. But he didn't remain there. We go on to verse 7 and we see the condescension of God in man through Jesus into this earth. In verse 7, it says, But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. These words that, I, that many of us have read many times over are so shocking they are so shocking to contemplate that that Christ from eternity past had been above all humans, all angels. The angels had worshipped Him from, from far before this earth was created, yet He lowered Himself into humble obedience to the Father. Out of passion to bring glory to God and out of love for you and I, Jesus became a man. Moreover, He made Himself the servant of all men. He made himself nothing before man. And there is no analogy I can tell you that would make sense of this. There there is nothing that matches. We could talk about how, you know, us becoming an ant and walking among ants and, and trying to serve ants and they're so far below us, but how does that match? We're still created just like ants are. We're talking about the infinite Becoming the finite? Kind of? The humiliation goes beyond what we can imagine, and this is exactly what Jesus did. You can imagine the scene, and this didn't take place, there's nowhere in Scripture that says it, but it's fun to think about. You can imagine the scene taking place in heaven on the eve of Christ's birth in Bethlehem, and and the angels know that something big is about to happen, that, that that Jesus' son is going to show up upon the scene. And they're around the water cooler on Christmas Eve, and they're like, how is this going to work out? What is he going to do? How is he going to display the glory of God so that anybody would understand it? Is, is he going to flash upon the world in this bright shining light that just knocks everybody on their backs? Is he going to come down with us, and, and we're going to lead the way, and he's going to be this thousand foot king with a gigantic shining crown. How is he going to do it? And then there he arrives upon the scene. A baby in the middle of nowhere born to nobody. And the angels are so shocked they just, at this picture of divine humility, how can they not just break out into song worshipping The king of kings sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will towards man. Just look at him. He confined himself to the womb of his own creation. He's being nursed by that woman. Just look at him. Look at what he's doing. It's so shocking. Worship him. How can you not worship him? for who He is and what He has done. We go on and we answer the question of why would would the Creator, the uncreated Creator of all things, do such a thing? And the answer becomes more mind-numbing. Jesus gives His own explanation to why He would do it. In Matthew 20, 28, He says, "...the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve." and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is why He came, to serve us. This is why He confined Himself to the womb of His own creation, to live and to die the death that we could not. We see that in verse 8 as we go on. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the most shameful death that can be imagined. He humbled himself. Jesus came to serve us by dying in our place. And that was God's plan. That was his plan for you and I. Your sin deserves his punishment. And he said, you can't pay the price I'll give somebody who will pay the price. He'll walk in a manner upon this earth that you never could in complete righteousness so that when you place your faith on Him, I'm going to look upon you and I'm going to see that righteousness. And for all of your sin, the punishment that you deserve, I'll lay that on Him. You get His righteousness, He takes your death. The best offer that can ever be offered, the greatest gift that can ever be handed down, and He did it. This is what Jesus has done. It is for our sake that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in this season of giving. There's no greater gift that can be imagined. The gift of the light to the nations. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, the text doesn't stop there. We've seen in the face of this small child in a Bethlehem countryside, the God-man, the obedient servant. But we also see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In verse 9, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the plan of God. A humble servant who the nations will despise but the kings will bow down to. When we think of a little babe, a little infant sitting in a place where cows and sheep eat, we can't forget who this is. He is the great I Am. He is the one who sits upon the throne of this universe every moment of every day, and He will never stop. This is the plan of God, and it is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. This is God's plan. This is what Isaiah was speaking of. Going back to Isaiah, we have to close with the question, this morning in your life, where you're at in the midst of the chaos around you, do you see what Isaiah sees? Do you see the King of Kings at work in the world around you and at work in your individual life? And it can be hard to see sometimes. The waves of life can come crashing after you, after, upon you one right after another until you are blinded to the world around you. To where it feels like you could be blinded from Christ Himself. And it is a struggle. And in this Christmas season, God is saying, don't forget who I am and what my plan is. I'm right here. Focus your eyes upon me. Remember who I am and who I sent, and what I am accomplishing. Don't forget Jesus did the same exact thing. This is one of the great blessings of Christmas itself. That was the God-man sitting in the manger who felt and struggled with what we struggled with and what we struggle with now. You could go back to verse 4 and read it yourself. He says in Forty nine four. Then I said, Jesus, I have labored in vain and I have spent my strength for nothing and in vanity. In vain. When we cry out to Jesus, we are not crying out to one who doesn't understand the afflictions of our life. He does understand them. He sat in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood. He hung upon the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands the crushing waves of life. But where did his eyes turn? Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work is with God. He goes on at the end of verse 5. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Follow Christ's model. Look to Him. If the waves waves feel so crushing that you can't even breathe anymore, do what Jesus did. Focus your eyes on God. Find your strength in Him and in Him alone. Find your hope in Him. These words are repeated, I'm going long, big shocker. But I'm going to read it anyway because it's just too good not to read. These words are repeated for us this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, We then as workers together with Him, with Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you know what he's quoting? Isaiah 49. That's what he is saying to us this morning. He's saying, I have done these things. Now is the time. He says in verse 8, thus the Lord says, in an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. That was God's plan from eternity past, that he would send his son for us, that he would be born and he would live and he would die and he would rise again And he would ascend to the right hand of the Father so that when we cry out to him, we have an advocate on our behalf who listens actively and says, today is the day of salvation. Cry out to me. Don't let another moment go by. Be a part of my plan that I started from eternity past. I will meet your need. Just like I met my son's need, I will meet your need And with him we can rejoice. We can sing praises. In verse 13 it says, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out into singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Let's follow Christ and cry out to him with all that is within us. Let's sing his praises for what he has done together with one voice, his glory for our joy let's pray father God you have sent your son to save sinners that was your word from an angel to Joseph 2000 years ago you will have a son and his name will be Jesus and he is sent to save sinners and Lord we are sinners We were created to reflect you, to be a picture of you, and we have failed. But you have not left us in that worthless estate. You have given us your son so that we might have life. You have given us your son as a light to the nations that includes every person in this room. Lord, and I ask, would you, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see that light this morning? May we see you clearly. May we see our Savior this morning as the humble servant of all humanity. And may we find comfort in your plan now. Comfort our hearts. May our eyes never be taken away from the beautiful picture of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May we proclaim him till our last and dying breath, and may you be glorified in our lives and the lives of this church and in this world that you have created for your glory. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.